So we've already spent two weeks thinking about the Bible's teaching on slavery and the great debate that took place about this subject during the period of American history leading up to and during the Civil War. As we begin thinking through uh, the laws that God gave to Israel to regulate this practice, I do think we need to summarize a little of what we've seen. Um, It's controversial. Uh, I am convinced it's true. The Bible simply does not condemn slavery as an economic institution. Rather, the Bible regulates slavery. It insists that both masters and slaves be treated with honor and dignity that all people deserve as image bearers of God. To be a slave meant that your freedoms were limited by your master, that you belonged to your master. But it also meant that your master had obligations before God towards you, including obligations of food and clothing and providing for your welfare. The wickedness of racism is clear in Scripture. The wickedness of abusing someone under your authority is clear in Scripture. Uh, But slavery as an economic system is not outright condemned. Why is that important to say? It's important to say because this has been the hammer in the back pocket of those who hate Christianity in our culture. And it has been so for 30 years or more. Just one example, uh, back when Jerry Falwell was leading the the moral majority, uh, he was on live television making a biblical argument about an issue of morality that was facing our culture at that time. And this particular television show had a liberal Episcopalian priest on the other side of this moral issue. And Falwell made his argument from Scripture... And then the priest simply responded, yes, but doesn't the Bible also support slavery? And immediately after saying that, Falwell found himself having to try and weave his way around the issue of of why we now believe that slavery is wrong, but that we should believe the Bible on this moral issue. And it hurt his argument, and it made it difficult for him to have credibility. And this hammer, it gets pulled out again and again. You you make an argument from the Bible about homosexuality. Yeah, but the Bible also supported slavery. And if the Bible was wrong on that, couldn't the Bible be wrong on this? Uh, You make an argument that God created man to be male or female. Sure, but it also endorsed slavery. And typically, Christians begin to just fall all over themselves trying to apologize for the Bible's teaching on slavery while saying that we should still listen to everything else that the Bible has to say. And I think we would simply be far better to just be clear, blunt, and honest. Yes, my friend, the Bible does permit slavery. And it regulates it, and it regulates it in such a way that human dignity is preserved, that human life is protected, it forbids the abuse of slaves, it required masters to treat their slaves in a way before they will give an account on the last day. That's the teaching of the Bible. American slavery, as we have seen, insofar as it was ripped through with racism and abuse and the dehumanizing of slaves, is outright condemned by the moral teaching of the Bible. American slavery is condemned by Scripture. But all slavery as an economic institution is not. In fact, the reality is that slavery in this world is just a picture of our own reality because we all live in God's world. We live on God's property and we all belong to God. We are his property. He is our master. And that is one reason why all people owe him reverence and obedience. And while we have very negative connotations in our day to this idea of people being owned, 
this is not a negative concept in Scripture. Indeed, children belong to their parents. Wives belong to their husbands. And in the Bible, this is all for the benefit and the flourishing of the children or of the wife. In fact, the word slave is used throughout the New Testament to speak of the relationship of Christians to Christ. In fact, Paul and the apostles loved to speak of themselves as slaves of Christ. It was the term Paul used most often to identify himself. Our Bible often translates the word as servant rather than slave, but it is the word doulos, slave. In fact, it's clear from Romans 6 that the apostles were not simply calling themselves servants in the general sense. They saw themselves as belonging to Christ. He had purchased them at a cost, at the cost of his own blood, and he was and is their master. It was their joy to belong to him. And to serve him because he cares for them. And what we're going to see in our study of these verses is that God was teaching Israel, who had been slaves in Egypt, that they were to practice this system in a very different way than they had experienced it in Egypt. And in a way, frankly, that was very different from the distorted, wicked slavery that was practiced here in our own land. God was to be glorified in the way Israel practiced slavery, just as he was to be glorified in every aspect of their society. So all we're going to do tonight is take our time and walk through these verses. So look at verse 1. Exodus 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So remember, we're now reading the book of the covenant. These are the laws that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai to regulate the life of Israel. In chapter 19, God had told Israel they would be his treasured possession. Israel, you're going to be my special people if you keep this covenant. And they agreed to that, and they came to the base of the mountain to hear the terms of the covenant. And God spoke the terms of the covenant. And it was ten commandments, booming, mountain-shaking, this voice that, that cried out. These ten commandments, the terms of the covenant. And the people cried out for fear, begging God to stop speaking directly to them, lest they die. Moses goes up the mountain, and he receives this book of the covenant from God. These regulations, these laws that help Israel apply the Ten Commandments to their nation. And this book of the covenant goes all the way through chapter 24. And that's where we'll find Israel formally adopting that book of the covenant and entering into formally this covenant with God. Verse 2. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So we see clearly that God is not prohibiting slavery in Israel, but he is regulating it. And the first regulation that God sets for Hebrew slaves is a time limit. In ancient Israel, a Hebrew male slave was not to be in servitude more than six years. Now, you might ask, how is it that a Hebrew man would become a slave in his own nation? Like, how would that happen? And we've already seen that kidnapping was outlawed, man-stealing, selling people, that was illegal under God's law. So Hebrew slavery was debt slavery. A man could sell himself into slavery to pay off a debt. If I owe my neighbor a great sum of money and I have no means to pay him back, then I could pay off my debt through service. It's very similar to the indentured servitude that existed in the early days of the American colonies. And once I had indentured myself to someone to pay off my debt, That man is now free either to have me work for him 
or he can sell my indenture to someone else. So in other words, if I owe a man a great debt and need to pay it off through service, it is possible that this man didn't really need my services. And so what he would do is sell my indenture to someone else, and then I would then pay off my debt by working for that person. And that was Hebrew slavery. It was debt slavery. Now, two other questions are immediately raised by this verse. So first, were Hebrew females ever slaves? And second, did the Hebrews ever have non-Hebrew slaves? And the answer to both of those is yes, but each of those had specific regulations attached to them. And so we'll see those as we move along. Now, verse 2 says that a male Hebrew slave could not be kept in service for more than six years. It also says that once that time of service was complete, the slave should go out for nothing. That is, there was no more payment to be made. There was no price to be paid in order for the the servant, the slave, to have his freedom. No, the work was done. It is finished. The slave is free. The master had no right to charge a slave for his freedom after those six years of work. God had declared that the slave was now free, and the slave was free indeed. In Deuteronomy 15, when Moses repeats this same law to Israel just before they're going into the promised land, he makes clear that not only were the masters not to charge their slaves for their freedom, but in fact, the masters were to furnish their slaves As they were set free. He says, this is Moses, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. And therefore, I command you this today. So once the six years of service was complete, the debt had been repaid. Not only was the master to set the slave free, but the master was to actually furnish and help his former slave now go out with some prosperity. Look at verses three and four. Verses 3 and 4. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Be careful here. Don't read antebellum American slavery into this passage. This passage has to do with marriage. This passage has to do with the worth of women. In ancient Israel, as in many other cultures, a man could not just marry a woman and take her for his own. He had to prove that he could care for this woman by paying a bride price to the woman's father. A wife is valuable, and there was truly a cost to the man if he was to have a woman as his wife. And only after that bride price had been paid to the girl's father could she truly become his wife. We'll see this bride price actually mentioned in the very next chapter of Exodus. But with that in mind, look at the three circumstances given in these, three ver- in these two verses. First, if a man comes into a slavery single, he shall go out single. And that one just makes sense. He's working six years to pay off his debt. It would not be right for him to take a wife while working off his debt because he would then be having to pay a bride price. And right now, he's already got a debt to pay. He's already got a debt in front of him. He belongs to his master during those six years of service. He's to be devoted to the service of his master. The whole reason he's in servitude is because he cannot pay his debts. Now, the work he is doing isn't earning him a paycheck. The work he's doing is paying that debt. 
And so he's not even able to pay a bride price. And so if he comes into the slavery single, he should go out single. But what if he comes in married? Well, this means that at some point in his past, this man was able to pay the bride price. He was able to show that he could care for this woman. He was able to obtain a bride, and the wife is truly his. Now, clearly, things have taken a turn for the worse. He is in debt, and he must serve six years as a slave. And frankly, while it's not clear in this verse, I think it's probable to assume that actually not only the man, but his wife were to come under the care of the master and to work for the master during these years to help pay off this debt. The master would be obligated to care for both the man and his wife during those six years of servitude. The master would provide their food and shelter while the man and the wife worked for the master. And then when the man was finished with his six years of service and released, well, so was his wife. They came in married. They go out married. They're one. But the third situation is addressing a thornier issue. What if a single man is serving his six years of servitude and the master chooses to give him a wife? Remember, the single man is not free to pursue a wife himself. He's already paying off a debt. All his work is going to his master. He's not making any income to pay a bride price. But a master could look with compassion on his servant and choose to provide a wife for him. The master could do this by paying the bride price for him on his behalf so that he could marry someone. Or, as we will see in the next paragraph, there were times when a man might pay off his debt by giving his daughter to the man that he owed. And the daughter would then become either the wife of that man or the wife of one of his sons, or that daughter could even be given as a wife to one of the man's servants. Now, we don't think in these terms today, but the point to recognize here is that in the ancient world, women actually were considered valuable. And they were also considered under the authority of the male to whom they belonged. And that male was first their father and later their husband. But their father could sell them to someone in order to pay off a debt. And in various ways, a master might be in a position to provide a wife to his servant, a wife that the servant was himself in no position to afford. Okay, so you have this person... He's serving off his six years of servitude, but his master has provided this woman to be his wife. What happens now? When the six years are up, the servant and his wife are still married. They're still husband and wife. And any children they have are still their children. But because the bride price hasn't been paid, the wife and her children are to continue under the authority and care of the master until the bride price is paid. So for the husband, once his six years is up and his previous debts are all paid up, the master can't charge him anything else. Okay? But the bride price that came into the picture during those six years, that servant must now go out in his freedom and make the money to show that he can care for his wife and kids. Until then, they are under the care of the master. Notice that these laws are intended to protect the life and the well-being of the wife and children. Now, let me say a special word here about protecting the purity of women. Because sometimes people get the wrong idea when they hear about these laws where a woman is being passed from one man's authority to another man's authority. Understand first, rape was absolutely outlawed in Israel Forbidden, Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27. Prostitution was outlawed in Israel. No master could pimp his female servants out as prostitutes. Deuteronomy 23 completely forbids that. Third, and above all, the law was clear that all sexual relations outside of marriage was illegal. Deuteronomy 22. So women were not to be given to men for any sort of sexual purposes unless the woman was truly being taken as that man's wife. With all of the responsibilities that the law required of that man to care for the woman, her well-being, her provision, her care. Look at verse 7. 
in this chapter. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So, So the assumption here is that the woman will become the wife of either the master or the wife of the master's, one of the master's sons, or perhaps even the wife of one of the master's servants. And so her servitude isn't like that of, of male slaves. Her servitude isn't six years. The idea is she is being brought into this person's house in order to marry someone in that house, and marriage is for life. So when it says she shall not go out as the males do, it means she doesn't end her slavery after six years. Rather, actually, this is a protection for her because it would be terrible if she became a man's wife. And then after six years, she was informed that her time as a wife was over and that her marriage was done. That's that's not how it worked. By the way, in the unusual occurrence that a woman did become a slave and yet she was not given as a wife. Deuteronomy 15.12 is clear that after six years, she too would be set free. So it's only in those situations where she has become a wife to someone that she is not. Uh, For someone who is not married, she would be a maidservant during those six years. And then according to Deuteronomy 15, her time of service would be done and she would be set free. But that was not the normal way of things. Look at verse 8. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Okay, so what if a man accepts a debtor's daughter thinking that he's going to marry her? Okay, so you owe me a great deal of money, but, um, but I, I think if you would give me your daughter to be my wife, then I, your debt will be paid. And then the guy gets to know this man's daughter and decides, you know what? This isn't going to work. I thought I was going to marry her, but I'm not going to marry her. Then this verse says, this man must let her be redeemed. He shall let somebody else pay the price for her freedom. Presumably some other man that desires to have this woman as his wife. And in doing this, he must obey God's law. He, he may not sell her to any man who's not a Hebrew. God's people were only to marry within their own people, those who belong to Yahweh, those who worship Yahweh. And so if he would not take her as a wife for himself and commit to care for her himself, he must make sure that someone else did. And that man must be a fellow Israelite. Again, all of this was to protect the woman from being left without a husband in poverty, in destitution. And by the way, we'll see again and again that these Old Testament laws are establishing principles using examples. So if this is the example of the master choosing not to marry her, the same principle would apply if he had obtained her for his son. And then the son said, no, I'm not going to marry her. Well, then she must be able to be redeemed. She's not to be left in poverty. She's to be allowed for there to be a man who can pay the bride price and take her for himself. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So if this master accepts another man's daughter in payment of a debt, designating her as a future wife for one of his sons, how is he to treat her until the day his son marries her? And the answer is, like a daughter. The woman is to be cared for like a daughter. He is to deal with her as with one of his own daughters. It is remarkable. These these protections for women actually show how different Israel was from many of the pagan nations around them. We tend to look back with kind of a distorted view, and we say, look, these women are being treated as property, how oppressive this is. But these laws were actually the application of the Ten Commandments, God's moral principles, to the ancient world as it existed. And these laws declare the value of women and the requirement that they be protected and provided for. Just as it was in the beginning, Adam was to receive Eve as a helpmate, but also as a precious gift to be loved and cared for. 
And frankly, despite the popularity of the feminist movement in our day, I think there is still something deep inside every female that longs to be cherished in this way. And I think there's something deep in every male that longs to be a respected leader and a provider. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. All right, so this deals with the issue of polygamy. What happens if this master took the daughter as a payment of a debt, married her, and then he married another woman? We know that polygamy is not God's design for marriage, as it's revealed in Genesis 2. Polygamy does not fit within the ultimate purpose of marriage, which is to display Christ's relationship to his church. The Old Testament gives us plenty of historical accounts reflecting the great troubles that come into a polygamous family. We remember the baby wars between Leah and Rachel as they fought for Jacob's affection. Nevertheless, polygamy was also not forbidden as an institution in ancient Israel. And this may well have been out of the concern for women to ensure that women had real opportunity to become a wife and to be cared for by a husband. In fact, this just reminds us that God allowed certain institutions to exist in Old Testament Israel out of concern for life and safety that probably would not exist in an ideal world. I think both slavery and polygamy are examples of institutions that God allowed to exist in his nation for a time out of concern for life and safety to protect life that certainly probably would not exist in an ideal world. These things served a role in their time. I don't think they are something we should be seeking to return to. Notice that verse 10 makes clear that the taking of another wife did not allow the husband to diminish the first wife's food or her clothing or her marital rights. And that first word food is actually literally the word meat. Okay? And the verse isn't just teaching that the wife must be well-fed and well-clothed. It's saying there must not be any diminishment. Whatever this wife was receiving before this second wife came along, she must continue to receive just as much. There's to be no diminishing. And her marital rights mean sexual intimacy and particularly the opportunity to bear children. And so while polygamy was being allowed, God was making sure that this woman was to be treated as a true wife and cared for as a true wife. What were the consequences if a man failed to care for his wife in that way? Well, he was no longer her master. She had been given to him in payment of a debt with the understanding that she would be cared for. If she's not being cared for, the arrangement has been broken and the wife is free to go. She owes nothing to her master, her husband. She's free from his authority. She probably wouldn't remarry because men seldom married previously married women in ancient Israel. But she was no longer bound to that man. Now... Remember, these laws for ancient Israel include both abiding moral principles and particular applications that were unique to Israel. So there is much in these laws that reflect the application of the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel in their context, in their time, in their history of that ancient society. And the application is going to look a little different for us. But the abiding moral principles remain the same. And one thing that I think we see here, which I'm convinced is truly an abiding moral principle, is that a wife who is being mistreated by her husband is not bound to stay with him. Uh, This was true in ancient Israel. And I think it's true in Paul's letter to the Corinthians concerning unbelieving husbands who did not consent to live peaceably with their wives. I think this is true today, that we must never think that keeping an abused wife with her husband is the Christian thing to do. Not at all. We should call the man to repentance. 
We should long for a day when there would be reconciliation and the preservation of the marriage and a, and a happy outcome. But until that happens, if a man is mistreating his wife, she needs to be placed in a situation where she is free from that abuse, where she is being cared for. And if that man will not repent and turn from the way he has been acting, then she absolutely should not be placed back under his authority. The Old Testament celebrates the worth of women as a precious gift to a man, the way the church is a gift from the father to the son. We are sinful and messed up, and we have to be redeemed. But let's be clear. Jesus rejoices over his bride. He cares for his bride, and the Old Testament reflects that. In fact, I think a strong argument could be made that it is not the Old Testament that devalues women. It is our own day which devalues women. It is our own day in which men use women, often for their own pleasure, with no repercussions at all. It is our own day in which a man may take a woman out to eat one time and expect her to wake up the next morning in his bed. It is our own day that expects wives to keep the home and raise the kids and have full-time jobs and careers. An expectation that I think is overwhelming. It's in our own day that women are often given to men in marriage with no required cost whatsoever. As if the daughter is no loss at all to her family. As long as she consents, that's all that matters. She's independent. She's not part of a family unit. She's not the child of her father and mother. I dare say, I think we can learn a lot from these laws about the value of women, about the value of a wife in particular, about the value of family, the importance of commitment in marriage, and the way Jesus values his people. We are his bride, and we are his servants, and he is our master. All right, go back to verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. Here we have one last circumstance addressed. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awe, and he shall be his slave forever. So notice first that these verses depict a situation where the slave loves his master. Rather than leaving his master and perhaps his wife and children, and then having to go work for the, the bride price for his wife, this is a man who is happy working for his master. He has been working in this family business. He has been treated, perhaps, as one of the family. The master provides his housing, his clothing, his food, all that he needs. And the servant enjoys working for this master. And God has ordained an arrangement where that relationship could continue without end. The master was to bring this servant to God. That likely meant bringing the servant to the tabernacle. And here there would be a public declaration, a, a legal ceremony in the presence of God, in the presence of witnesses. The doorpost referred to here seems to be that of the tabernacle itself. And there, the man's ear was to be pierced through with an awl. So this is a small, pointed tool used for creating holes in leather or in hide. And in this way, the man would be marked as one who had chosen to remain a servant to his master for his lifetime. Now... Before we leave this subject of slavery, there are two more brief passages in this chapter that address the subject. So look down at verse 20 first. Verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, it is clearly assumed in these verses that there might be times when a master would use a rod on his slave. 
And this was a form of discipline commonly used by those in authority to chastise those under their authority. Parents used rods on their children. Back in these days, husbands actually used rods on their wives. Masters on their servants. Magistrates on disobedient servants and citizens. Unlike today, when many view corporal punishment as abusive... The ancient world saw corporal punishment as a convenient and customary form of discipline. In fact, you were unlikely to meet someone who had not been beaten with rods at some point in their lives, particularly in their childhood. But this deals with the situation of a man who beats his slave with rods and then the slave dies. This was not the kind of discipline that God permitted in his nation. After all, what use could it be to a master to beat his servant so severely that he did any kind of permanent damage or injury? Master's just hurting himself since the servant works for him. And if he beats the servant so badly that the servant dies, this falls under the category of murder. And based on chapter 21, verse 12, the slave owner would be put to death. Remember, we started this series. Frederick Douglass sharing about a man on a plantation who would beat slaves sometimes till they died. In Israel, that person would be put to death for having done that. In fact, this goes all the way back to God's pronouncement to Noah after the flood. If a man sheds another man's blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. The penalty for murder is the death penalty, for that shows the serious value of human life and the care and regard we should have for another person's life. But what if the master disciplined his servant, and it was some days later that the servant died? The issue here is justice. Because you can see how a servant might receive a typical, justified, humane beating from his master... And then die some days later of a completely unrelated cause. And yet people would try and pin the slave's death on the master. And so verse 21 is seeking to protect the right of the slave owner. If the slave didn't die immediately after the beating, but survived some days, there is some real doubt as to the cause of the slave's death. And they didn't have x-ray machines. They didn't have metal technology that we have today. And the Bible is very careful never to punish anyone for something they didn't do. And so verse 20 protects the dignity of the slave. Verse 21 protects against false accusations towards the slave owner. And the last part of the verse, for the slave is his money, was a way of saying that the master is invested in his servant and that it is right that he would expect the servant to work The master has the right to discipline a servant for laziness or for disobedience. Look down at verse 26. Verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So make sure you hear this. Make sure you understand this principle. If a master was in any way abusive towards his slave, if a master in any way caused real injury towards his slave, that slave was to be set free. God expected masters to treat their slaves with care, like fathers towards children. Should fathers discipline their children? Yes. God disciplines his children. Proverbs teaches us that a father ought to discipline his children and that a failure to discipline is a failure to love. Spare the rod, spoil the child is being proven true all around us every day. But the law strictly prevented or provided against anyone who would do real harm to another person, including a slave. Any true harm done to a slave meant that that slave was free immediately and with no further payment needed for his freedom. The master had lost his right to be a master. And what do we find in the New Testament? 
We find regular reminders to masters to treat their slaves as they themselves would want to be treated if the tables were turned. The masters were also reminded that they have a master in heaven. God himself, who shows no partiality. Those who have authority over others will give an account to God for the way they stewarded that authority. Those who have authority over others also have responsibilities towards those under their authority. They'll have to give an account for that. So, to wrap up what we've seen. The Bible did permit slavery as an economic system. But it also recognized and valued the dignity of every human being in that economic system. And it had laws to protect the dignity, welfare, and basic rights of each person in that system. Our nation does not practice slavery as an economic system, nor do I think that it should. But the abiding moral principles apply. Whether it's in our homes, our workplaces, our church, we should make sure that these things are being upheld. Namely, the dignity, the value of the lives that are around us every day. We are to make sure that the, as, as we have opportunity living in a democracy to shape the laws and the policies that govern this land, they ought to be laws and policies that protect the rights of people's life and physical welfare. And when God gives us positions of authority, whether it be a man in his home, parents and their children, leaders in a church, political leadership, One of the obligations that is there is that the people that you care for, that the people who are under your authority are are better off because you're in authority over them. It should be in their best interest that you're there in their lives. They should be flourishing because you have authority over them. And we ought to make sure that we are never doing anything that would harm those under our care. Hard verses, we did our best. Any questions? <laughs> yeah, if, if, if the master did something that injured the slave, in the, the, that might probably change the slave's mind, right? He probably doesn't want to be be there anymore so he would then be immediately set free in fact the law would step in and require him to be immediately set free that's a good question Picking and choosing, right? Picking and choosing which verses to believe. Yeah. Justify our own sins. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one issue that we did not address in this series that I think shows what God was really doing here is He's bringing the Ten Commandments to bear on the ancient world. Is um, this whole passage is about Hebrew slaves? 
about slaves who are, who are your fellow Israelites. And you notice they're all set free after six years unless the person chooses not to be, right? So it's very limited slavery. Um, but when you get to Deuteronomy, you begin to find these passages about what they do with, with foreign slaves. And here's the thing. If you had foreign enemies, right? They, they live near you. Their land is near you. What are you going to do with them? Okay? And your options are what? Either, either you're going to kill them, wipe them out, okay? Or you're going to put them into a, a situation where they are under your care, under your power, right? And yet what we see is that unlike the foreign nations that took Israel as slaves, Israel, yes, were to take these foreigners into a slave system. But they were still to follow basic principles of caring for their needs, caring for their, their welfare, feeding them, housing them. I mean, this was Israel's enemies. And they were to bring them into this system and, and care for their needs in that way. So it really was very revolutionary. And it really was something where um, in any economic system, right, we ought to be taking these same Ten Commandments and bringing them in and say, how does the Ten Commandments change the system? And how does it make it honor God in the way that we do it? The, the two primary ways that, that people became slaves, one, if you were a Hebrew, it was typically debt. It was just you had nothing. You were losing everything you had. And basically, it was almost a mercy because now you were going to be cared for even as you paid off your debt. You were going to have sure food on the table. You were going to have sure clothes on your back even as you were able to pay off that debt. And then if you were a foreigner, it was typically going to be through war uh, that you would be conquered and brought into this slavery which was also a mercy rather than being destroyed, right? Because Israel couldn't just let them be there attacking them. So it was either get rid of them or bring them in. They brought them in. That is actually the way that I read. Well, I will say this. It's not so much that the children are necessarily tied to the wife, though that is true, but it's more about who is responsible to care for their needs. And in this case, if it's not the husband because he hasn't been able to pay, it's the master who's still taking care of them until the husband can pay. Yeah. So it is one of those things where other principles go into this. And we have to remember, too, these were real people with real lives. So I don't think we're supposed to imagine a situation where a master just randomly says, well, okay, I guess I'll accept your daughter as payment for your debt, and I'm going to force her on. You know, I don't think that's the way it typically was. Typically, this would have been an arrangement, right, where, where both parties were trying to be satisfied in the arrangement. And the assumption is that this is a servant who probably would want the woman to be, to be his wife. I think if certainly if you're bringing somebody into a significant time and, and, and uh, an, an amount of service to you, whether it be your company, your business, or the state, or whatever it is, then there are also some obligations on the hiring, on those who, the, who run, the, to, to care for those who are serving, right? So it works both ways. That raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's, another, that's another night. <laughs> was slavery was common throughout the world until the 1700s when it began to go away in Europe and then the 1800s when it began to disappear here and was still happening in other parts of the world until the late 1800s and even in some parts of the world until the 1900s. The, not having slavery is the unusual thing. 
right? Not having slavery as an economic system is the, is the, is the weird, it, we live in unusual times. Um, we live in a times we look back and we wonder how in the world could people do that? But it truly was all the world had ever known and um, up until till that point. That's a very good point, Pastor Mo. That's very. We we should not pretend that slavery not exist does not exist today. It does. It does exist today. Oh yeah, yeah I think so. Cert, certainly, human trafficking is illegal. Yeah. And, and we like to pretend that our economic system is very different. But in some ways, as Brad was kind of highlighting, there, there are, there are some, some real similarities between the two. You're getting close, aren't you? <laughs> You're getting close. I do think, though, I mean, one application then isn't, as we think about migrant workers and folks like that, shouldn't Christians lead the way in saying, we better make sure that these folks are taking care of them, right? Doesn't mean we're making their lives luxurious. That's, that's not the requirement. But that, that their needs are met. Yeah. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you guys for being patient for some longer messages over the last three weeks. I knew it was a difficult subject, and I wanted to be careful in how I said it and all that. So thank you for your endurance in that. And uh, next week, we will be uh, moving on, looking at other of these laws here in Chapter 21, most of which have to do with, with violence, with different kinds of ways that people might be killed, manslaughter, those kinds of things. And we'll be talking about you know, how we take those laws and apply them to our own day. That's not true. We're going to have prayer meeting next week. Then we'll do that. Right. That's right. That's right. All right. Pastor Murrow, will you pray for us?